This is a Federal News Network podcast. Memorial Day sent Congress home for a week's recess, so the gun debates and other matters will have to wait a few more days. For what to expect next, we turn to Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. Zach, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. How are you? All right. And just review the schedule for us. They're gone this week and then they're back next week or what's going on? That's right. Both chambers are out of session this week. They'll be back next week for another couple of weeks before then they'll be out again uh, for the July 4th recess. And so that'll be another pretty busy work session. As you mentioned, sort of guns are sort of top of the agenda. I think when they get back, the House is going to vote on a bill related to uh, a red flag law, right, sort of uh, imposing what they're called extreme risk protection orders in certain cases where courts have decided um, at either the behest of a family member, uh, a significant other, um, even police in some cases um, have said a person, you know, should not have access to firearms. And so that bill should come to the floor in the House over in the Senate a little more complicated. Sure. And we don't really know the administrative details of how those laws would actually play out or what agencies they would affect because it's all kind of being done in haste. Yeah. Over in the Senate, there's a couple of different uh, a couple of different bills that they're sort of starting off, it sounds like, as their sort of base text. Senators uh, Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal have had a bill in the past that would be a federal uh, red flag law that would basically allow federal district courts to impose these extreme risk protection orders and then leave it to the U.S. Marshal Service or a law enforcement agency of their choice, basically, to take these guns back uh, and then to return them to people if the orders are lifted. Then the, there's another bill from Senator Marco Rubio um, and I think this is the direction that they would probably go instead, based on our conversations with senators um, last week, that instead that they would basically grant money to the states to incentivize them to design their own red flag laws. And that would leave it to state courts and their law enforcement offices to sort of both determine whether these orders would be in place and then to actually retrieve the guns at um, that question. So it sounds like because this has been an abiding issue for both sides and a point of debate periodically, they do have bills that are mostly written already. They're not starting from scratch here, in other words. Yeah, recall that, you know, unfortunately, after every mass shooting, there's sort of this debate in Washington and across the country. What can Congress do, if anything, to try to stem the, um, the amount of gun violence in this country? Um, after Sandy Hook, there was the failed effort to pass the mansion to me background check expansion Bill, there's a lot of interest. I think actually Senate Majority Leader Schumer put two bills that passed the House already on the floor that he could force a vote on if he wanted to. That would expand background checks. I, I believe one would close the gun show loophole, so to speak, right, to try to institute background checks for private sales in certain cases. But in general, they, were, they both do background checks um, expansion. And so there are definitely bills out there. The question is, can people like Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, Senator John Cornyn from Texas, come to some sort of an agreement on a bill that can get 60 votes in the Senate? Because in today's day and age, you really do need 60 votes to overcome a filibuster because basically every bill and basically every nomination is filibuster at this point. Sure. And it seems like just looking at Congress from a process standpoint, giving them the benefit of the doubt, they've had a series of things which seem to just dump on them a whole lot of new concern outside of the routine stuff they're supposed to be doing, like the annual budget. First, there was another COVID wave. Then Ukraine happened. And now the shootings that took place in Texas. And there have been some manufactured obstacles for Congress, like debates over Build Back Better. This all has a cumulative effect on their ability to do the routine business. It could. And I think actually more visibly, we see sort of the inability to con even confirm nominees 
to a lot of these posts. There's over 100 nominees waiting for Senate confirmation, most of whom, you know, in a, in a normal administration and a normal political environment, which would be confirmed by voice vote and be done very quickly. So a lot of the Senate's time on the Senate floor is spent processing nominees as opposed to debating these bills. We're going to see that something a little bit different next week when they come back. They're actually going to vote on uh, pretty historic legislation expanding the benefits to uh, veterans who were exposed to toxic open air burn pits during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's something that actually should have broad bipartisan support, despite the price tag. It'll lose a couple of Republicans on that front, but should get passed by the Senate and sent back to the House. And so they are voting on legislation. There's a, a large, uh, I guess what's called a China competition bill um, that's in the middle of conference negotiations between the House and the Senate that could pass sometime this summer um, is sort of the timeline that um, lawmakers are talking about. We'll see if they're able to keep to it. And then, as you mentioned, government appropriations, the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual military policy bill, all of those sure. are sort of waiting in the wings without a lot of progress. We're speaking with Zach Cohen. He's congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government. And I wanted to ask you about the appropriations, because as we talked about with your colleague, Lauren Duggan, the four corners, if you will, of the people in Congress that come together, the ranking and chairs of the House and Senate Appropriations Committees. They had a little gambit a few weeks ago. Did that go anywhere? And is there any chance it looked like there was a glimmer of hope that they could get something done before the CR would set in October 1st? No chance or less chance or anything going on there? They're in the middle of hearings. All of the appropriations committees, subcommittees have been having hearings with uh, senior Biden administration officials on um, what an annual government funding bill might look like. It seems pretty unlikely to me that they'd be able to pass all 12 appropriations bills by the September 30th deadline when the fiscal year ends for the, the U.S. government. Stranger things have happened. There are the, the two of the four corners, uh, Senators Patrick Leahy and Richard Shelby, are both retiring at the end of this year. And so they might be looking for a feather in their cap and might be looking to actually pass some appropriations bills on time, which would, would certainly be a victory in today's partisan environment. Um, but if they're not able to do that, then yes, there would be another continuing resolution, most likely, probably until after the election at that point, and leave annual government funding either to the lame duck session of Congress or even the year after, once new majorities come in. What a great legacy to talk about after you retire. Yes, I got a budget done on time. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> right. this is my legacy as senator. Maybe they'll have more than that to talk about. Any of those nominations in particular that might come up sooner rather than later? For votes, they're scheduled to vote um, first thing when they come back on a uh, on a cloture motion, a, a motion to sort of limit debate on an Air Force nominee, uh, Alex Wagner. Um, the secretary has been confirmed a while back that this is an assistant secretary that's been waiting in the wings for a bit, and so I assume that'll get you know he'll get confirmed probably by that Tuesday, a week from today, and then they would turn to this uh, this veterans affairs, this uh, toxic burn pits legislation. After that. Remains to be seen. There's, I think there's about a dozen nominees that are waiting to be confirmed, including chair of the Merit Systems Protection Board, which I think you all have talked to Lauren about in the past. Um, right. Well, she know, was confirmed, but they have as a, as a member, but not as, as a, a member, chair, which is kind of interesting. The chairmanship has to be confirmed also. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. So they confirmed her as a member, but not as chair last week. And so they're, they're about halfway done through the process. So maybe they'll get to that <laughs> next week. So, so they're a headless horse now, but at least it has all of its <laughs> legs, you might say. Exactly. Zach Cohen is a congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Sure, anytime. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. 
Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, 
my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.